Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. Luke chapter 4, we'll be beginning in verse 14. We'll be studying through verse 30. In just a moment, I'm going to read 14 to 21. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, one under a chair close by. We start on page 859. I want to welcome each of you to worship, particularly those of you that's your first time with us. We're glad that you are here today. And also want to extend a welcome to those that's your first time back in a while. Each Sunday, we're seeing folks who uh, have had their vaccination or other reasons are, are making their way back to joining us for worship. It is such a joy to see each of you. I want to remind us all, it's obviously more people in this room each and every Sunday. Let's continue to be vigilant and be wise. The coronavirus has not gone away. Uh, so let's be wise in how we uh, interact and, and spend time with each other each Sunday when we gather and at other times. So Luke chapter four, as I said, I'm going to read verses 14 to 21. For context, I invite you to stand, please, as I read. <clears throat> and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that the proclamation of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will be received as what it is, good news. As we will see in this text, Jesus' own people reject him. May that not happen in this place today, but may you be received by faith. May we look to Christ and believe. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. This is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, his public ministry. He doesn't start with miracles or visions. He will perform some and we'll see some of that next week. He begins with proclamation. Don't let this get lost on you this morning. Jesus begins the way the Bible begins. In the beginning, God said. God is a speaking God. He is a proclaiming God. He makes himself known. He reveals himself. And this is how Jesus begins. That in the power of the Spirit, Jesus begins his ministry proclaiming good news despite the response and rejection of his hometown. In this text, we see Jesus, who is the prophet, on whom the Spirit of God rests. 
We also see how Jesus' ministry is going to be received. Sometimes he's going to be cheered on and accepted. Other times he's going to be violently rejected and sometimes by the exact same people. We also see that Jesus escapes and ultimately he will escape through the power of the resurrection. First, we start in verses 14 and 15 and we see in the power of the spirit, Jesus begins his public ministry in Galilee. Now think Galilee as a region. Think Western North Carolina in your mind. It's a fairly large region area. This, these verses, verses 14 and 15, probably represent a year of Jesus' ministry. The way Matthew and Mark deal with his ministry in Galilee, they don't pick up this story in, in, uh, that Luke does in Nazareth until midway through their narrative. Luke starts here. He gives you a very brief, succinct explanation. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus does not come limping out of the desert. He comes in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. What does that mean, in the power of the Spirit? What it's speaking to is the necessity and the outworking of the Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples in Acts to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then they will be his witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The necessity of the Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel. The power of Christ to teach and to proclaim. He taught in their synagogues. Now the verb here is imperfect. So it implies an ongoing action, something that Jesus continued to do. And as he taught in their synagogues, he was glorified by all. They saw what he was doing as significant and from God. Now, <clears throat> before we move on with the rest of the text, I just want to make an application to us. We see the secret of the Savior's success that he preached in the power of the Spirit. Sometimes I think people like me who preach and people who take up the teaching of God's Word can see it as an academic exercise, as something that you study hard for, and then you get up and use your skills to speak. I'm so concerned about this. It's a part of a class that we teach on preaching. I use a book on the Holy Spirit. This is a significant quote from it. There is no record that Jesus uttered a single word of public ministry until he received a special endowment of the Holy Spirit that, among other things, equipped him to speak as God's authoritative prophet, as well as setting him apart and sustaining him so that finally, by the same eternal spirit, he offered himself without spot to God. This then is the first line of evidence concerning the necessity of the immediate agency and operation of the spirit in the act of preaching and teaching. If the Lord Jesus needed the Holy Spirit in the way for preaching ministry, then so do we. I would argue apart from the Holy Spirit, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but it's not preaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that's what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this from the onset of his ministry. Now we turn 
from this very brief explanation of a year of Jesus' ministry, which could have taken up an entire book, to a very specific account in Nazareth. And we see that in the power of the Spirit, Jesus proclaims good news despite the response and rejection of his hometown. What's going to unfold here is very detailed. It's one of the most detailed explanations Luke gives. And one of the reasons he does this is because this forms a paradigm of Jesus' ministry, of what he does and how people respond. So first, the proclamation of good news. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. So this is his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So this was normal. Every Sabbath day for his lifetime, he'd gone to the synagogue. And on this day, he stood up to read. That is, read the scripture. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place that is written. So he's so familiar with this scroll, which did not have chapters and verses in it, that he knew exactly where to read. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and from Isaiah 58, verse 6. He said, he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, what I want you to see are the two main verbs. He has anointed me and he has sent me. These are divine passives. These are things that God has done. God has anointed him in the spirit and he has sent him. Now, the rest are infinitives to proclaim good news to the poor. To The poor are those who look to God alone for help. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set prisoners free. Now we know in Jesus' ministry, he never sets a literal prisoner free. So this is a metaphor. Those who are prisoners those who are captive to sin. He proclaims the gospel. He proclaims liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, that the blind receive their sight. And literally, this is one of the miracles Jesus will perform, but it speaks to more than that. In Acts chapter 26, we know it says, delivering you from people, your people from the Gentiles, whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and may receive forgiveness from their sins. So the opening of blind eyes, the opening of eyes in the New Testament means to lead someone to salvation, to reveal to them the good news, to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now, I want to say this as clearly as I can. You know when your eyes are opened. I can't open your eyes. Only the Spirit of God can open your eyes. All I can attest to is there's no longer a vague sense there is a God or you need to get right with God. You see Christ. You see him as the one and only who can save you. You see him for what he has come to do and accomplish on your behalf. And you see yourself desperately in need of a savior because of your sin. Those things are clear and you flee to Christ. You run to Christ and you believe and you trust him. You know when your eyes are open. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, literally these are the people who've been shattered. These are people who, it's an, a warfare image, who have been overcome and overtaken and have been held captive by those who have overtaken them. These people need mercy because they're at the mercy of others. 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to the year of Jubilee, the year when debts were forgiven. We all need the debt of our sin forgiven. And Jesus here is announcing the dawn of salvation, that deliverance has come. So he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Now we do the opposite. I invite you to stand. Then you sit down and you're saying, I'm ready now for the sermon. When Jesus sat down, their eyes are fixed on him cause they're ready now for the sermon. And Jesus gives the quickest exposition in history. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Simply stated, Jesus says, the someday that Isaiah promises is today. The fulfillment is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one whom the Spirit has anointed. His ministry now will be directed at the poor prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. Now, he says he began to say to them, So Luke is implying he says more than this, but Luke wants to make sure we get the significance of what he said, that today this scripture has been fulfilled. Now they respond well. They said they spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. The gracious words. So so get this. The first words that Jesus proclaims are not do this or don't do this. He doesn't offer a moral command. He doesn't offer an obligation. He doesn't say work harder or do more. He proclaims grace, good news. And initially, these people are excited. They approve. They respond positively. Then you have this statement. Is this not Joseph's son? And there's three ways you could receive that. They're either amazed. Is this Joseph's son? Or there's contempt. This is Joseph's son? Or there's doubt. Is Joseph's son? What? Which leads us to the next section. There's a shift here. There's a response and a rejection to Jesus. And Jesus responds and rejects them. It's not one-sided. He said to them, doubtless, you will quote me this proverb. There's actually two proverbs. They were very common at this point in time. The first one, physician, heal yourself. What you have heard, we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus is saying, they're saying, prove what you say. Do what you're doing over there. We've heard about what you're doing over in Capernaum. Do it here. Do it here in your hometown. We're your family. We're your people. And and this healing and these things you're doing, it ought to happen right here. You ought to give the same benefit to your own people that you're giving to others. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. I just want to interject here very quickly. Uh, I hear this quoted quite often as that's an acceptable proverb. Is it acceptable that Nazareth rejected their hometown prophet? No. So just because somebody's from here doesn't make it okay to reject them. So let's be real careful. We don't misuse what's said here. Jesus 
in making this statement, is identifying himself as a prophet. And that he ranks with the Old Testament prophet who has been rejected by his own people. Now he's going to give two illustrations. Two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Now, I just want to say this before I get into it. He briefly does this and they get it. Because we don't fully understand the New Testament and what's going on. We can read through this and not get it. We can go, why do they get so upset? What are they so tore up about? So let me try to quickly explain this to you in such a way you grasp it. Verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, and here's where you ought to underline, there were many widows in Israel. There's your key. Who's, who's the hometown for the prophet of God? Israel. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up, there were, there were three years and six months and a great famine over the land. The reason this is happening is because they won't listen to Elijah because Jezebel under King Ahab has set up uh, idols to, the, to Baal throughout the land. And they won't repent. And because of that, God's got created a famine. And they're dying, literally, because there's nothing to eat or drink. Next statement. And Elijah was sent to none of them. Who's them? Israel. None of his people. Now, look at the word sent. Who sent Elijah? God did. This is God's plan. This is God's will. He sent Elijah not to any of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. You want to guess who's from Zarephath in the land of Sidon? Jezebel. He sends the prophet to Jezebel's hometown to a woman who was a widow. Now when he gets there, he asks this woman for something to drink, something to eat. She says, all I've got is a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And me and my son, we were going to make some bread, we were going to eat it, then we were going to die. Elijah says, trust God, make the bread, and the flour and the oil will resupply. And she believes, and she trusts, and by faith, God continues to supply for Elijah the Jew and the widow and her son, a Gentile. One more brief illustration. And there were many lepers in Israel. See the key? Lots of lepers in Israel. In the time of prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So again, God heals a Gentile. And this is a powerful Gentile, a general, who shows up looking for healing. And at first he rejects what he's told to do to go to, to the Jordan River. He says, I, we got cleaner, better rivers where I'm from. But the servant of Naaman says, you need to believe God here. You need to trust what the prophet's saying. And he does, and he's healed. So in sending Elijah to be helped and to help the widow in Zarephath, and Elijah in helping the Gentile leper at Naaman, God was passing by his own people. And Jesus here implies that something similar is happening in Nazareth. That the works done elsewhere will not be done in Nazareth. That God in his judgment is passing them by. This is not the sort of thing that the people of Nazareth want to hear, especially from someone who is from there. 
He ought to be pro-Nazareth. So let's just simply say that the people of Nazareth get it. They fully understand what Jesus just said to them. How do we know that? Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. So it's built up on a little plateau, and then it drops off sharply. Now, to get to the brow of the hill, because I've been there, is not like we're going to go out of the church here and go into the courtyard, and there's the brow of the hill. It'd be like going from here to Sherwood. It's quite a distance out of town. Particularly, you're walking. So they take him out to throw him over the hill, and then it says, but passing through their midst, he went away. Now, I had never considered this a miracle till I was there. And just how the topography and how this lays out, something miraculous happens that Jesus departs from this, that he passes through their midst. That's not the point. Here's the point. Rejecting a prophet is a risky thing to do. And there's absolutely no evidence Jesus ever returns to Nazareth, ever. And he goes to Jerusalem and he pleads with Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 13, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are, who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gathered the brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until that day. You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see this rejection and this attempted murder of Jesus here is not just part of the rejection of Christ. This rejection of these people and their attempt to kill him is a foreshadowing of what's coming. And people try it more than once. In John chapter 7, it says that, that in Judea, the Jews were seeking to kill him. And Jesus tells his disciples to go on up to Judea or to, to Jerusalem, but he's not going to go because his time had not yet fully come. But then there's going to come a moment in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It's very clear. It's the, it's the moment that, that Luke turns to Jerusalem in his explanation. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was going to take place, that there was a time, a moment in time for him to die. And not just to die. When I'm going to die in Nazareth over a cliff or somewhere out in Galilee, or somewhere out in the, in the hillside. He's going to die in Jerusalem. Literally, we're actually just outside the city, where he was going to hang on a cross, and he was going to take the punishment of our sin, and he was going to take what we deserved and die in our place, and that three days later, he would raise it from the dead. <laughs> See how Nazareth is pointing you to what's coming? He's going to escape. He's going to escape from the tomb. Here's the simplicity, brothers and sisters. The cross and the resurrection are the only way to salvation. Apart from them, we cannot be saved. And here's the question I have to ask you today in light of the text of Nazareth and the gospel message. Am I trusting Christ as the sole source of my salvation or rejecting him out of familiarity and contempt? I want to talk to you this briefly about subtle rejection and hostile rejection. First, subtle rejection. Jesus is not rejected in a place like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's rejected in Nazareth. 
in his hometown, among his people. And here's, here's what a warning I want to offer to you in this place today. Familiarity with Jesus Christ is dangerous. You get so familiar, you just do the southern religion thing, you go in and out of church. Now, I don't understand, that's dying quick, and COVID's probably sped it up to where people doing the southern religious thing are probably going to fade off. But there's still people who do it, who just ease in and out. There's no outward vocal rejection from you. You're, you're not saying, I don't believe that or I reject that, but it's inward and it's subtle. And I just want to say to you today, the Lord knows your heart. He knows everything that's going on inside of you. He knows exactly what you believe and he knows exactly who you are. Then there are those who have a hostile rejection. This group is growing more and more every day. An anger that the Bible would suggest that you're sinful and that you need a savior. Anger over the exclusive claims of Christ. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one would come to the Father except through him. You say, well, I don't see anybody so upset about that. All right, proclaim that in the public square and see what happens. The reason that some of you don't know there's a hostility is because you're not speaking the truth of the gospel in public, or you're scared you're going to get a hostile reaction. Brothers and sisters, we must come to terms with what's in us. And the Bible is very direct. In Romans 8, 7, it says, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. I have sat with more than I can count, dozens, maybe over a hundred in my ministry life of members of the church, young men and young women, adult men and women, who have convinced themselves that what they're doing and what they want is okay. And as they continue to pursue it, and brothers and sisters point out to them that it's wrong, or somebody like me points out that it's wrong, their anger grows more and more, and then they find the party line. You're so judgmental. No, listen to me. It's not that I'm judgmental. Now, there are judgmental people. And there are hateful people. But when the word of God speaks directly to who you are and what you're doing, that's not me judging you. That's God. And when your mind is set on your flesh and what you want, whether you admit it or not, there is an inward hostility to God. An inward hostility that he is standing in the way of what you want. And here's what modern people want. They want us to rewrite Christianity and rewrite what the gospel says and rewrite what the Bible says to fall in line with what they want. God will not be mocked, brothers and sisters. Here's what must happen for us. We must come to the same realization that Paul did in Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I have to see myself as poor. I have to see myself as a captive. I've got to see myself as blind and oppressed and in need of the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord must forgive my debts. I'll never repay them. 
I must see myself as sinful and in need of Christ. I'll tell you a story. This is not original to me. I got it from Kent Hughes. In the late 19th century, there was a church in London, England, a large church in the center of town that had grown to have a burden to plant other churches. And it had planted churches in the poor and the difficult places and places outside the city. And once a year, they would all come together, all these congregations, and share communion. During the communion service, the pastor looked down at the altar and he saw a stunning sight to him. He saw a judge who was a member of that congregation and beside him a convict who had been released from prison and had been gloriously saved at one of the smaller churches outside the city. And the pastor knew the judge is the one who had convicted him and sent him to jail. And there they stood, knelt together. The service was over and the pastor called up to the judge walking down the street. He approached him and he said, sir, did you see who was beside you in communion? He said, oh yes, I did. And the pastor said, what a sign of God's grace. And the judge said, yes. But not like you think. It is God's grace that he saved me. I grew up in this church. I was educated at Cambridge. I've had religious instruction my whole life. I'm a man of wealth. I'm a man of power in this city. And if anyone could assume that he's right with God, it's me. Here's God's grace, pastor. That he opened my blind eyes to see. That I have believed. I understand why the convict is there. He was at the end of his rope. But a man like me to be saved, that is evidence of God's grace. So let me say it clear and bold. There's not one of you that's been a Christian your whole life. You don't exist. Until God opens your blind eyes to see the depths of your sin and the hope that is in Jesus Christ and him alone, you will never be saved. And it is my prayer that today you see and today you hear and that you will not subtly or hostilely reject him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the truth that we find therein. Thank you for the conviction that it brings. And Lord, I pray and plead for every man or woman who find themselves in this moment under the conviction of their sin, that they would look to Christ and believe. That they would not turn away or turn aside. And Lord, that you would give every believer in the room the confidence through the power of the Spirit to make this gospel known either among us in places of teaching and sharing or wherever we go, that we would go in the power of the Spirit and that we would proclaim you. Holy Spirit, guide us, lead us. And as we're about to sing, may it be always Jesus, ever Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's stand and sing together.